was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are studied various. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, Series 3, Episode Number 10. Thanks to our long-time listeners for sticking around, and a big welcome to any new Cubby recruits joining us for this Series 3 finale. We've got a Christmas Jones cracker of a show for you today, and yes, I am keeping that line in because... This episode was originally scheduled for this December. Uh, Incidentally, we can confirm that we haven't been taken over by Eon Productions, despite the rather large gaps in between our creative output. Uh, But we do have more plans for this year, so do stay tuned for them. Before we begin today, though, do remember you can find our back catalogue of episodes on all good podcasting platforms. And also consider giving us a review while you're there. They do help us reach the wider Bond community. We promise any kind words we do receive will not lead to a Dr. Kananga-style overinflated opinion of ourselves. Additionally, if you'd like to get in contact with the show, it couldn't be any easier. We've streamlined our online presence, so you can now find us under the handle More Cubby, More spelt the Roger way, of course, M-O-O-R-E, on all social media pages, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as a new email address, morecubby at gmail.com. So do keep your questions, queries, comments, and theories coming in. We'll continue to feature the best correspondence in the questions Q-Branch section of each episode. Now, in our previous episode, we spoke to David Lowbridge-Ellis about the enduring queer appeal of Bond. We shared our top seven Felix Lighters. Uh, Apologies again to John Terry. Sorry, not sorry. And uh, we also analysed Daniel Craig's exciting Bahamas entrance to the franchise, far better than his exit from the franchise. I think we can all agree on that. And uh, talking of exciting entrances, it's time to introduce my co-hosts. For a price, he'll impersonate anyone, the man with the golden tongue. It's Adam. How are you, Adam? I'm very well, thank you. I won't um, tell you who else calls me the man with the golden tongue. That'd be uh, giving it away. But yes, I'm very good. So, So yeah, this was meant to be a Christmas special, wasn't it? Did anyone get... Any good Bond Christmas presents? I got I got a great one. I got um, all the Bond themes on vinyl. I was just going to mention, actually, so I got the uh, James Bond Lego uh, Aston Martin DB5, the Speed Champions one, and that was my entire Boxing Day. I think it should be a almost a Christmas tradition that anybody that's a Bond fan should spend Boxing Day just building or listening or watching their Bond's gifts or memorabilia. Yeah, that looks good, Phil. I've I've also gone musical. I got uh, a CD, a very old-fashioned nowadays, of course, a CD. I can't remember. I think it's a Philharmonic Orchestra doing all of the other Bond themes. C- can you guess which song I've listened to the most so far? Uh, I've shocked even myself here. Is it um, All Time High? I think that's up there, but very surprisingly, I've actually listened to... Uh, Never Say Never Again. The orchestral version is rather good, actually. I was about to say, were you going to listen to Never Say Never? I I knew that was what you were going to suggest. It does have the unofficial themes on there. And yeah, the Casino Royale 67 is quite good as well. That actually, no, that is a really good theme. Casino Royale 67. Yeah, that one's all right. Never Say Never Again, you're nuts, though. That's a terrible, earwormy, awful song. I know. I apologise to all Bond fans out there. 
And secondly, he's a man who scared the living daylights out of Adam and I when he drove us anywhere uh, when we were teenagers. But his car knowledge is unparalleled, a bit like his parking. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? Martin, we are back. I am delighted um, to be joining you guys for um, our season three finale. Um, of course, unlike No Time to Die, you can never kill off the cubby hole. We will, we will always be back for more podcasting. It might just take us a little bit longer than usual. This week is a little bit different. We had a lovely email from a lady called Carrie Webb who got in touch with us um, to thank us for our obviously great work. Um, she was mentioning that during the pandemic, she was laid up with COVID and and got around to to listen to the podcast um, and just said that it was great to listen to to us as fans. So that was really greatly appreciated from Carrie. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to just say thank you to Carrie for that email as well, because it was fabulous. And she, I think, works in the film industry, right? I think she works in costuming uh, and actually gave us her own top seven of her favourite Bond girl outfits, which felt pretty definitive when I uh, remember reading it. So thanks so much for that. Yeah, I was when I was reading the email, I was thinking it was better than most of our top sevens, to be honest. <laughs> so thanks a lot for that, Carrie. I think we need to, you know, honour Carrie and, and say she needs to come on the show, I think. So so Carrie, if you are listening, please do get in touch again. We'd, we'd be delighted to have you as a guest on the show uh, moving forwards. Oh, that's quite a nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. So let's start the episode as we always do with On the Scene, the segment where we analyse significant and often overlooked scenes in the Bond franchise. And this time we're saddling up for a wild ride with everyone's favourite biological experiment. Yes, we're going to take a closer look at the introduction of Max Zorin's stud farm and horse sale party in 1985's A View to a Kill. So without further ado, to remind us what happens, it's uh, this podcast's workhorse. It's over to Mr. Alan Partridge. Old man Bond and pudgy sidekicks the Norman Tebbit rock up at Chateau Zorin in a massive roller in the ludicrous disguises of James St. John Smythe and his nosy Parker chauffeur. Bond chats with riding britches fitty Jenny Flex using nothing but innuendo. I take it you spend quite a lot of time in the saddle? Yes, I love an early morning ride. I'm an early riser myself. Bond sets off a tape of him wanging on at Tebbit that must have taken them literally hours to record while Tebbit drones on about a missing horse and California totty Stacy Sutton gets played in on a chopper and a dirty saxophone. At Zorin's weird Regency dinner party, Mayday points menacingly at Bond through a window. He spies on Stacy using the worst-looking sunglasses of all time and clones a whopper 5mm check. Bond meets an extremely obvious ex-Nazi doctor before coming face-to-face with Mad Max himself. I take it you ride. I'm happiest. In the saddle. Bond starts flirting with Stacy, who's thinking, why is this old granddad hitting on me? Leaving Mad Max bloody disgusted. Mayday! Get away from him! Then he has a cheeky flirt with Mayday for no good reason. Someone will take care of you. Oh, you'll see to that personally, will you? Bloody creep. The end. Thanks a lot to Alan Partridge, as ever, for that lovely summary of one of the important Bond scenes. It's hard to commentate on uh, on that scene because I think... Partridge has taken all of the uh, all of the things that I was going to say. The terrible sunglasses, the, the creep at the end. I guess for, for me, these scenes are kind of made more interesting by the fact we've got Roger in 
his pomp, Rogesty, that he can tell he's still really enjoying it. So I think the my enjoyment of the scenes is tied together, I think, with Roger's enjoyment of the of these scenes in particular in uh, A View to a Kill. Uh, and I think he works so well with Patrick McNee's Tibbet, doesn't he, uh, because of their past connections, all of the work they've done previously. Uh, so yeah, I think that's that's what does it for me is Moore's enjo- clear enjoyment about working with McNee. These scenes in particular, I just love the interactions between the characters because it's, you know, it's it's blatantly obvious that, you know, Mayday knows who he is and he's still putting up this completely absurd pretense that he is, you know, a well-to-do, wealthy aristocrat. And in my notes for this, I was kind of thinking, well, it's often said in the film industry that the kind of the better the project is, the harder it is to make it, whereas kind of the projects that kind of often get panned and criticised are actually just really good fun to make. You just get the feeling that A View to a Kill, yes, it's not dynamically these scenes aren't the best, but you just get the feeling that they're having a really good time making it. But there's just a great photo between shots of Roger Moore and Sir Patrick McNee in hysterics in laughter just before they're about to film the next scene, stood next to the Rolls Royce. Interestingly, I went back to one of those DVD making of documentaries for this, and the character of Tebbit was originally meant to be a jockey, uh, but it was Barbara Broccoli who just really wanted to use Patrick McNee. Uh, and I mean, you do sense a sort of young athletic sidekick would have made much more sense than the bomber jack- jacket duo that we get. Um, but yeah, it, it just can't help but be very endearing. And, and like you say, um, McNee and Moore do go back a long way. There's that great comedy of Bond giving Tibbet the run around. Uh, McNee is really hamming it up, chucking those bags around. Uh, and Moore is just loving telling him off. I think he improvised a lot of the dialogue. And you just get so many great moments um, when Moore goes, oh, let me give you a hand. And he literally just takes the umbrella off him. And also the fact that Tibbet's just the worst spy in the world. He doesn't see what we do to Pegasus because he's just jumped into a stable carry-on film style. And then we just get a comedy head poking out the side of it. You know, Tibbet's meant to be this sort of equine expert. And there's a scene later on where Bond is explaining how the steroid works to Tibbet. You'd have thought he would have had some basic medical knowledge of how a horse is going to get an advantage when it's injured. I think you guys are being harsh on Tibbet here. I was going to say that he was actually a rare instance of a uh, of an ally who's quite useful i think he does quite well coming coming off these scenes come off the back remember of the that chase through paris of, of mayday where bond ruins the someone's wedding doesn't he Tibbet does have to arrange this invitation on short notice so i think he's i think he's done quite well apart from the ridiculous alias sinjin smythe <laughs> i can't believe when they're going through the gates of the chateau or the security check pan pan ho is it i think she's the other one uh, and she reads out his name she gets the singin correct and then it's the smith that she can't pronounce <laughs> how did that happen yeah it's just uh, but the thing is it seems to be like a film of just dreadful aliases because as we see later on when he's with stacy he suggests that his name is james stocks and he's from the financial times i mean that's the worst alias it's literally just like as if you were in a police interview and you have to make up a name on the spot. It's just well, it is just really funny how totally uninterested in him Stacy is in this uh, scene. She's just slightly amused at this old gent hitting on her, um, as she should be. I mean, when he is later James Stock, he has to woo her by you know saving her from some villains and cooking her a quiche. He doesn't really care if it all backfires on him and Tibbet if he's found out. He is just being a total... He can't resist giving himself away. I mean, even you mentioned the scene before. He even has the fly-fishing remark to, to Max Zorin. He's literally saying, yes, I'm the man made a med at the Eiffel Tower. I'm 
actually a spy and I'm here to just cause a little bit of mayhem. But also the fact later in the uh, the chateau scenes where you know he's in Zorin's office and he falls for the fact that Zorin has a camera behind the mirror. The fact that he can fall for something that obvious, you know, he's, he already knows that Zorin has all these resources. Yeah, it's almost like uh, Roger breaking the fourth wall, isn't it? It's like, uh, we all know that I'm Bond. Every, all of the characters know I'm Bond. <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned the mirror as well, Zorin's mirror, because there's some nice actually down-to-earth gadgetry here, like the fact that he's got the checkbook that he can read and then sort of, you know, they've got the tape recorder they've got the shaver bug detector which they do a little bit of old-fashioned going around the room with the only thing i don't like in all that is those bloody sunglasses he's wearing at the party i mean he, they just age him even more than his botox face don't they yeah i mean they really are state of the 80s if we you know we we often mention that things haven't aged well in the bond franchise those sunglasses are, are one of the prime candidates i'm surprised the 007 store hasn't listed them but they don't you can't actually do anything they, they've got the little thing around the edge of the the rim but they're still a thousand quid there's a general eyewear problem in this scene because uh, there's also the fact of dr carl mortner i, I mean the, the moment he has a german accent and a monocle you know he's a nazi like he is the most badly disguised nazi eugenicist he, bond even starts talking about that with him well you're clearly a nazi let's let's see what you've got to say champagne yeah, I mean, it is a bit faulty towers. You know, you half expect Basil Faulty to, you know, kind of goose step in and, and uh, you know, it is that absurd. And, and as I say, all he, all he needs to complete the sort of evil genius uh, starter kit is a little moustache that he can twiddle. That's that's all he needs. Yeah, John Cleese's time in the series was, <laughs> it hadn't come yet, Phil. But it is true. I mean, I mean, Phil, you will have obviously paid very close attention to Alison Doody as Jenny Flex throughout all these scenes, but she is smiling wryly pretty much the entire time. I mean, she's fully clued into how ridiculous the whole thing is. You contrast it with like Grace Jones's Mayday, who's really trying to make a virtue of her intimidating physicality. But then Alison Doody's just gone totally the other way and gone, yeah, this is daft as a brush. Um, at the time, she was very, very young in that role. I think she was only about 19. So obviously that does raise a few questions about the uh, the infamous flirting between Bond and Jenny Flex at, when they're introduced. I mean, I've, I've always been a great uh, advocate for Alison Doody, as, as we've often remarked on the podcast. Uh, and I always have, again, I always have a soft spot for Jenny Flex and, and it makes it all the funnier, the... Uh, the kind of the banter, let's say, between Bond and Flex when they first meet. You never know now that Amazon have bought the rights to Bond. It could be a new spin-off show, couldn't it? Horse riding with Jenny Flex. And she's still young enough to be part of the series herself as well, isn't she? I was gonna say if she hadn't drowned in the in Zorin's quarry, I guess that you know, she could always make a comeback. Well, Bond died as well, but he should be coming back. <laughs> to give it its due, this sequence is actually a really fun way of orchestrating introductions to all the main characters who are featured. We've only really seen Zorin and Mayday at this point. Now we get to actually meet them and get to know them a bit. Uh, and Stacey obviously is brought in as well to sort of help with that. And John Barry's orchestration of the Duran Duran theme for Stacey Sutton's theme, I think is just absolutely beautiful. It's so gentle and tender. It works really great for that character. Um, and actually the production design's great. This is a lovely place that they've shot to film this. I think I think it's in the I think it's in Shantee and it sort of evokes the wealth and the elitism of those sort of upper class worlds which Bond takes to very easily and which of course Zorin has managed to infiltrate his way into. Yeah, I was, was going to agree with that about the music. I, I that is one of my all-time favorite pieces of of music for not just from the Bond franchise but from film soundtracks in general. 
Yeah, I think the, the environment really sets it up nicely, I feel, and quite reminiscent of Moonraker as well. Hugo Drex, that'd be a deadly combination, wouldn't it? Max Zorin and Hugo Drex. And Phil, on, on the opulence, am, am I right in thinking that the Rolls-Royce was Cubby's own car? Uh, I mean, I guess he would have loved seeing them chuck all that muck over it. So, yeah, so this is a bit of a random uh, fact. So, yeah, so the, the Rolls-Royce belonged to uh, Cubby Broccoli, as we know, the producer of the Bond films. When they do the drowning scene of Tibbet and Bond, um, I believe that was actually a... That wasn't actually Cubby's car that was getting pushed into the water. That was a... Um, I think it was a body shell that was on top of a, a different chassis. Wouldn't it be funny if it was Cubby's car that they put in the water? I wonder how strong the Bond family would be if Cubby had to face them. <laughs> you amuse me, Mr. Bond. So we move on to the main feature of the episode. It's for your ears only, the interview segment, where we invite Bond fans, actors, film crews into the cubby hole and uh, have a chat about their experiences with Bond. Uh, but who did we talk to this time, Adam? Yes, this time we spoke to Stephen Begg, who was the visual effects supervisor on uh, Casino Royale, Skyfall and Spectre. A fascinating man. He's got a great background and he has some really interesting things to say about um, the latest era of Bond. So let's cross over now to Stephen Begg. Uh, my first memories of Bond were going, obviously going to the cinema as a kid. And I think the first one I saw was... Uh, from Russia with Love and Goldfinger. And then, you know, I just thought, God, I'd, I'd love to work on this. But simultaneously, I was also very taken by Thunderbirds and the Jerry Anderson stuff that was on TV at the time. And I could see a kind of crossover even back then. And this is before Derek Meddings got involved with the Bonds. At that time, uh, through a, a friend of mine, uh, I met Jerry Anderson in, would you believe, uh, a, an exhibition of his stuff in Blackpool. I showed him some of my amateur films that I'd done with using a lot of special effects in them, and he was quite taken by it. And he said, keep in touch. So I did to the point of almost pestering him over the next six months. And then he said, um, uh, can you draw? Can you, can, can you illustrate? Things like that. And I said, yeah. So he said, can you send me some examples of your work? So I spent... Uh, a couple of nights feverishly generating as much kind of uh, futuristic uh, concept art to the highest level I could. And I sent it to him. He was impressed. And then the next thing I know, he's commissioning some art for me for designs for his up-and-coming TV show, Terrorhawks. And I worked at Bray Studios on that. And uh, I basically got a crash course in special effects and then ultimately ended up through various... Uh, circumstances directing the special effects at this time Derek I think eventually I ended up having lunch with him and it was amazing like my childhood hero and then he asked uh, you know what are you doing now I've got two films I can't supervise both can you do one but I'll I will still be the overall supervisor can you take care of it and uh, so I got fully immersed into all aspects of visual effects and then I was offered the job of directing the miniature work on a Terry Gilliam film uh, the Brothers Grimm. That led to me doing the uh, directing the miniature, all of the miniature work on uh, Batman Begins, who I worked with Chris Corbold. And I'd worked with Chris on Lara Croft Tomb Raider a few years before that. Chris introduced me to the Bond people and I ended up doing Casino Royale and then uh, Skyfall Inspector. You mentioned the, the miniature special effects. What Was that always a passion that you had 
to go into the uh, the miniatures. Yeah, I, I very much so. Um, you know, as I said, Thunderbirds had a fun, uh, and the, the other Jerry Anderson shows had a tremendous impact on me. Um, I must say that a lot of the miniatures I've worked with in the last few years have been anything but miniature. They're, you know, they're pretty huge. On uh, Batman Begins, the Batmobile was third scale and it was about five feet across. And if it hit, it was radio controlled and if it hit you, it'd break your leg. Whenever I can, I like to uh, use all, all tricks, every trick in the book, basically, to get the effect. Um, I'm still passionate about miniatures, and whenever I can, I'll, I'll, I'll shoehorn them into a shot if I can. You've mentioned uh, working with Derek Meddings sort of earlier in your career there, and I understand you you sort of did some work on the uh, the miniature effects in GoldenEye. Um, could you sort of tell us a little bit about the specific uh, work you did for that film? But I ended up doing a lot of uh, animated effects with this, uh, there's this massive EMP electromagnetic pulse comes from a satellite and it basically uh, energizes and electrifies a lot of uh, objects including these MIG fighters that uh, Derek shot and I had to put lightning effects and stuff on that as they crashed. It, it, again totally surreal experience for me to be working on top of my my hero's work at the time and plus he was around a lot uh, this was at the Magic Camera Company um, and I was doing these uh, these animated lightning bolts on top of his stuff. Thank you. And, uh, and moving forward to Casino Royale, when you are um, the visual effects supervisor, um, just how widely, I guess, across all the various departments on set would you you generally work? Because I understand it's quite an all-encompassing sort of difficult role as you're sort of shooting. Uh, you're basically one of the first on and one of the last off. So uh, I'm in there on the pre-production, liaising and dealing with the director and the editor throughout the shoot liaising with the director and the editor throughout post-production. So uh, it, it is an all-encompassing uh, job. Of all the films and projects I've worked on, Casino was the one I've probably enjoyed the most. Uh, I was in my element, you know, I was supervising the effects on a you know, massive James Bond movie with miniatures and all sorts of elaborate digital effects. I was, it was a very high energy job and of all the bonds I've worked on that's the one I'm the most nostalgic for it was just a blast it was absolutely great fun I really liked Martin Campbell who could be quite a bit of a character he'd uh but knew exactly what he wanted. Um, I guess we've heard that uh, in previous interviews you mentioned the uh, the difficulties of that uh, that scene uh, where the the building is going down into the Venice Grand Canal uh, what were the some of the specific difficulties that you that you had creating that Strangely, there was a lot of pressure or assumptions that we would go the full computer-generated route for that. Uh, coming from a miniature background, I thought, and I, I had just done Batman Begins, where we had some pretty colossal models that looked very convincing. I thought, well, we've got water to deal with, which is notoriously difficult to scale. And I thought, uh, if we could do this as a big model, and, you know, they're, they're, so they said, well, well, like what, 12th scale? Uh, whatever I said, no, third scale New York, Jesus, you know, that's not, it's not much of a model. Uh, so we ended up with this 17 foot tall uh, Venice villa on a hydraulic rig that uh, Chris Corbell and these guys put together. And I supervised and directed the, the shooting and the plates that it had to go into as well in, in Venice. I had a 12 man special effects crew. I had 60 extras, two cameras, one of which I was operating on the Grand Canal. We closed off two ends of it to shoot our special effects stuff 
bubbling water, what have you, background plates with, with extras reacting to this imaginary collapsing building and then shoot plates off the model that we would insert into the Venice footage I'd shot uh, months before. And I'm very proud of that sequence. I mean, a lot of people fell for it. You know, they actually felt, believed it was an actual, because it's a Bond movie, they assumed they could do things like that full scale. It was helped by, uh, we, we threw car engines and all sorts of stuff into the paddock tank against a big blue screen. Uh, so I had full scale splashes that we superimposed, matted on top of the, any model splash that didn't look too realistic. So it's a real sandwich of uh, tricks and techniques. And uh, I'm very proud of that. I think we pulled that off very successfully. And uh, and then, of course, earlier on in the same movie, we got the sequence with the uh, the model aircraft. And a lot of people bought that as well as a real airplane. And that's because I tried to shoot it from camera positions that you would do, you could only achieve if it was real. So there's no kind of fantasy Peter Jackson type swooping shots down on the model. It's all treated realistically. What was the sort of atmosphere day to day on that film and, and that energy? Was it different to the other films you worked on? And was that coming from Martin Campbell as a director or was there just a general feeling that you were working on a film that would turn out to be really exceptional? Well, if you remember at the time, there was a lot of people who were worried about Daniel Craig's casting. I think we spent seven weeks in the Bahamas shooting the opening, you know, chase. I'd already worked with uh, Daniel Craig on Lara Croft Tomb Raider, so he kind of knew me. But there, there were, it didn't feel like we were working on anything super special at the time. Then what they did is before we came back, uh, Stuart uh, Baird did a, a kind of assembly cut of the action sequences so far. And then, wow, what a buzz everyone got out of that, thinking this is special. And so there was that coupled with the, the adrenaline that um, Martin Campbell has made it a very exciting experience. And the thing I really liked about Martin is he'd give you a hard time uh, to, until he got to know you. and that, But then once you got in with him, you, you were like, he trusted you, you know, to do things. But he phoned me up and asked me if I shot looked good. And I said, yeah, I think you're really going to like it. And uh, staying with Casino Royale, we saw that uh, online there's a picture of you with a very realistic looking miniature of the uh, the DB5. Uh, was that the one that was used in that uh, in that record breaking uh, attempt? I know, I know the one you're talking about. Uh, no, that's actually from Skyfall. That's the DB5 that uh, the helicopter crashes next and and over, I should say, and into the farmhouse at the end of Skyfall. And I, I can see how you confused it, love. We're not the uh, we're not the car people. Phil is the uh, the car person. <laughs> well, moving on to Skyfall then, and because we were going to say there are some extraordinary, rather pyrotechnical moments in it. That one, of course, the explosion of Skyfall um, and the crashing underground train as well. What were the sort of challenges that they uh, they brought with them? Uh, I mean, I'm very heavily involved in all aspects. You know, the train crash, however, is primarily a practical effect. Uh, done by Chris Corbold and his guys. Um, our involvement was basically removing cables or rods or whatever that uh, carried the, the train. The the two main model effect sequences in that are MI6 blowing up, uh, where we had a huge fifth scale segment of the top of the, the, the circular bit, the front of the building blowing up. Even though it was, it was fifth scale, it was quite a big bang. And then that, that was matted on top of uh, uh, the plate that was shot in London with Judy Dench reacting to the, 
the building blown up. It's funny to get to get her to jump. Uh, they let off a gun behind her, <laughs> which <laughs> everyone do that as it as it blew up. Um, it has been criticised by a few people, including Martin Campbell, funnily enough, that it looks CG. It's not CG at all. It's a bloody big bang. And then uh, at the end, there is the the helicopter crashing into the farmhouse that Bond Bond's parents uh, lived in. Uh, that was again third scale, which was my sort of optimum uh, scale for fire and explosions and stuff like that. What was unusual about that is that I got the DB5 and the helicopter made using uh, rapid prototype uh, techniques rather than just model making. So, although there's a slight inaccuracy in the DB5, its wheels are the wrong scale, I've noticed. Uh, pyrotechnics again done by uh, Chris Corbell's guys one of which I'd worked with uh, on a Jerry Anderson show years before and I said can you do the bang uh, particularly one on uh, MI6 can you do it like you did on uh, Space Precinct when we did it and, and he did and that's why they, it scaled really nicely uh, yeah and I guess uh, moving on to uh, to Spectre was kind of the first Bond film that moved away from the the miniatures um, what was it like the uh, the difference in uh, in working on Spectre. Strangely enough, uh, you know, there's that continuous shot at, at the beginning of it, which is actually seven shots that we put together through a lot of effort to blend them together. And obviously gave Sam Mendes the taste for continuous shots, which are a bloody nightmare to put together, if I'm honest. But we blended together seven shots from discreetly different locations around Mexico City and Pinewood Studios. And then ultimately ends up with Bond blowing up a building nearby that this is a combination of practical effects again for the initial detonation and then it's basically taken over by um cg animation by uh, industrial light magic but then at the end when uh we had to just completely destroy mi6 uh sam mendes insisted on it being a miniature if you want to have a collapsing building miniature it has to be broken up enough to look realistic when it falls apart but also structurally strong enough to support itself till the collapse and that's where you can have a lot of issues and problems and scale killing things can go go on there so nonetheless uh we're almost pressured into uh doing a miniature test which didn't go well at all as i kind of predicted while that was going on i uh got um, double negative to uh, build a CG version of MI6 as a backup should the miniature not work. And that's what you see in the movie because the miniature did not work. Uh, and I did tell them it wasn't going to work, but they insisted on having to go. What you see in the movie is CG. And the whole film is primarily CGI effects. There's very little old-fashioned miniature work in it. It's also one of the first Bond movies to have a CG creature in it. There's a little mouse in it at one point. Oh, on the Komodo dragons as well, of course. Um, across Skyfall and Spectre, what were some of the, the, the most challenging shots, I guess, to make look realistic uh, with those uh, technologies? I, I enjoyed Skyfall a lot. Spectre, not quite so much. But Skyfall, uh, some of the fun stuff for us was making near Guildford, there's some uh, military range out there that we built this, this, this Skyfall set on. And we had to make that look like uh, snowy Scotland. Uh, so there was a lot of environment work in that that I thought was done fairly believably in shots like that. And even that, that when you see the helicopter approach, the whole landscape underneath it is CG. That's the thing I remember the most, actually, was the environmental work, the subtle stuff, not just the action stuff. You know, my, Miami-Dade 
airport was uh, where a Top Gear Dunsfold. That, that was actually our Miami. Every uh, every angle of that airport was a map painting with uh, airfix airplanes flying around in the sky in the background. You've uh, you mentioned the two directors, uh, Martin Kimball and Sam Mendes. Uh, how mm. would you say the directing styles contrasted we won't ask you who your favorite was but how did they no. differ in terms of their working style well they did and they didn't there, there was a there's quite a bit of overlap um sam uh would grasp tricks and tech techniques really fast uh considering he had, he had very little experience with them spectre was different I, 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 there was a different kind of vibe entirely on from not just for me but for everyone that that is interesting because I, I, gu- I guess of the two like skyfall is is sort of generally regarded as as the better film one of the very first meetings we had with uh, sam he said he admitted that he thought casino royale was the best bond movie you know he just uh, he just loved it admired it we got the editor from casino royale stuart baird you know he wanted as much as that ambience as he could get into Skyfall, even though it's a completely different kind of story or narrative. Spectre just felt like a by-the-numbers by the Bond movie, really. I think a lot of people felt that as well. That said, one of my all-time favourite sequences for working on was uh, the opening sequence of uh, Spectre. I think that's the co- one of the coolest openings in any of the Bond films. Everything's right about it. The, the, you know, the continuous shot, the swagger that um, Daniel Craig has when he's running across, walking across the rooftop. He was originally supposed to run across the rooftops, but couldn't, but he because he'd hurt his ankle. So he has this swagger, which I think is absolutely cool. So it's a great, you know, uh, amalgamation of tricks and techniques and acting and directing and everything. Um, I guess yeah. sort of talking about locations, um, you'd have obviously travelled to some amazing ones making the free films. Do any sort of stand out as highlights or hold um, especially fond memories for you? Shanghai, yeah, in Skyfall. Shanghai, really, uh, that was dreamlike for me. I had to shoot a lot of plates and photographs very high up on like 76 stories up on some of the skyscrapers. And we were up there at night and it was Blade Runner for real up there. You know, there's neon light and colours everywhere and a haze. In terms of working with uh, Daniel Craig, was there much interaction with him? How did you uh, how did you get on with uh, with Daniel? I remember one incident in particular. We're doing a sequence in Skyfall. Sam wanted it as a continuous shot. And it's the sequence where Bond is fighting an assassin in silhouette against the neon backdrop as the camera sort of trucks up to him and he ends up throwing this guy out the window and the camera goes over Daniel and then tilts down as you see the guy tumbling away down and Sam wanted that as a continuous shot so we had to do a blend again from a stunt double to Daniel Craig and at one point uh, Daniel Craig could sense I wasn't happy about it even though Sam was happy and uh, yes he said he said he said you're happy he said but he's not happy Steve, you, you're not happy. I went, uh, he went, he said, ah, he said, ah, right, we're redoing it. This, so and he, he, he helped us redo it, you know. Yeah, he, he's very cooperative. He was very good to work with. We know that um, from previous uh, guests, the post-production schedule can be incredibly tight. Did, did you have that experience on any of your films? Did any go, like, properly down to the wire? Oh, yeah, Spectre. Uh, it was part of the reason why I'm not, I'm not so wow about it, like um, the, the other Bond. It was just made... It, 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 stupidly fast. I mean, I'm surprised it came out as well as it did. 
generally on these kind of films, you get 12 to 16 to maybe 20 weeks to finish the thing off, right? This was, I think it was eight or 10 weeks from whatever, whatever I remember, and a massive amount of visual effects work. So a lot of it kind of just fixing things, you know, some that didn't quite work. Looking at the Daniel Craig era, because you were so instrumental in, in the look and the feel of it, how would you like that to sort of be kind of remembered 10, 20 years time? He's an incredibly believable character, but a Superman, if you know what I mean. And so, I mean, there's a, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, there's a terrific bit right at the beginning of the chase in Casino Royale that shows you what kind of character Daniel Craig is going to play Bond as. As they're going through the construction site, the, the bomber leaps up through a gap and then Daniel Craig falls in by going right through the bloody wall. You know, he just smashes right through it. It's plasterboard. And just the, and everything about it is that determination that he, you know, he brought to particularly to action sequences. Uh, I just thought I hadn't seen in any of the other bombs, apart from Sean Connery. And uh, I liked that. And that to me, he was the most believable bond of of, of a lot, with the exception of Connery. So that was Stephen Begg, visual effects maestro of the Daniel Craig era. Lovely to uh, chat with him and find out the inner workings of some of our favourite Bond scenes. And uh, we must say an extra big thank you to him as well. Not only did he show us some of the, the actual models that he'd used in the films, uh, he also shared a large collection of his photos from the, the set of Casino Royale, Skyfall and Spectre, which I thought were absolutely uh, fascinating. I've actually I've got the one of his photos of the DB5 in Skyfall is my current background on my laptop. So uh, they were lovely to, to see as well, but uh, great to have him. Oh, that was quite a good line. It was a very good line. So our next segment is the 007 Best segment, where we collectively choose our top seven in a broad range of Bond categories. And this time, it's the big one. It's the ultimate top 007 list of our top 007s. Yes, it's finally time for the Battle of the Bonds. Uh, so where did we rank Connery, Lazenby, Moore, Dalton, Brosnan, Craig? And to make up the numbers, Niven, I think we know where he is. Uh, so let's start with... Number seven. Yes, making up the numbers is David Niven. Um, but he is in, from, of course, Casino Royale, the first one in 1967. But he is interesting, Niven, because he was Ian Fleming's first choice for Bond. Um, and it just sort of shows you that the producers were very lucky that they waited until the 60s to make the Bond films after so many aborted attempts. Because I think in the 1950s, we would have had David Niven and they'd have probably been in his mould, old-fashioned English thrillers lasting, I don't know, two or three films. But of course, in the 60s, you then harness the energy of the... And swinging London and that culture change and you land on Connery as a much rougher and sexier lead. I agree with, with your sentiment as well, the fact that, um, you know, in the build-up to Casino Royale 67, Niven had had a, quite a, you know, a really positive career in terms of the films he'd appeared in. I think that as well with him being considered early as an early candidate to play Bond, I think when you compare him to Connery, he was a bit more caddish in, in his mannerisms. You know, you certainly see that in Casino Royale 67, he is you know, very much playing an older Bond, a, a very caddish Bond that's, you know, he's retired and he's he's not particularly interested in returning to to support MI6. And, and it just gets, it, it gets very silly very quickly. So I don't think it's in any doubt that he was going to come last in this list. Yeah, we shouldn't really be doing a Bond podcast if we had Niven higher than seven on this list, should we? He's not helped, is he, at all by the film that he's in? Because I think uh, I actually enjoy his performance. I, I mean, I hate the film. But I, I quite like that Kaddish character that he develops. Maybe he could have been a more 
appropriate maybe M character in the in the real series. He could have been like a field agent that then, you know, in retirement he then becomes kind of a wise cracking um quartermaster to Bond in where that would have fitted in as well. You're right about the Caddish stuff and it's interesting. He's almost entirely non-violent in this film i know it's a comedy but sort of aside from a car chase i really can't remember any sort of fist fights or shooting that he does he's much more about wearing the suit well and, and clasping the ladies as is appropriate because i mean i guess the thing to bear in mind is even though casino royale is a total spoof and and just terrible niven always played niven and so what we see of him in casino royale even though it's a spoof isn't probably a world away from how he'd have approached the character had it been in a serious thriller number six and in at number six, and uh, I don't think it's too much of a surprise, number six is George Lazenby. Yes, gorgeous George may have starred in uh, just one of our favourite Bond films, but it's uh, it's not enough to keep his ranking uh, very high on this list. Uh, it's a shame, really, because I think uh, there was so much potential that he had, but unfortunately it was a, a combination of stupidity from his agent, perhaps arrogance from the man himself that could, that cut his Bond career short. Uh, so yeah, I think there were glimpses of greatness. Of course, I mean, the film is great. And there were glimpses of greatness from Lazenby as well, that he deals with the, the silent scenes quite well, particularly that uh, infiltration of Gumbolt's office that we've spoken about in previous episodes, the panther-like walk, similar to her to Connery. Uh, he deals with the, the dubbing scenes quite well as well, just the a slight stiffness coming on as uh, Dr. Hilary Bray. And uh, obviously he deals with the, the final scene is perhaps the, the best part of the film portraying the, the heartbreak of losing uh, his new wife. Uh, so yeah, unfortunately it's all the bits in between those things. I think that where the cracks do show in a quite wooden performance. On the back of the fact that, you know, he, he was coming in after Connery had left the franchise, you know, it was, it was big shoes to fill. It was, you know, it was a really big, task that he had in his hands and it you know it was in, a, in an unenviable um position that he was in i think he deals with that really well in in the film i know as we've said there are moments when he is a bit wooden and, and his acting doesn't really reflect the gravity of, of the situation yeah I, th I think i agree i mean he was the perfect man for the moment he wouldn't have worked in any other bond film but his awkwardness and vulnerability actually helped bring out bond's humanity in that film and you've also got the thing of he has martin you mentioned his physical confidence um there's the thing of you know him conning the producers and the director peter hunt sort of praising him and saying well you're definitely an actor because you convinced those really hard as nails guys that you you could do this um but of course course that shatters over into the over the film into first love and then grief it's one of the great what ifs isn't it had he stayed in the role would they have sort of been dark thrillers into the 70s or actually would they have gone the way that roger moore's did tonally and become sort of light-hearted comedies and actually could that have played to george lazenby's strength as well yeah, how different would diamonds are forever have been if george lazenby had stayed on and you know and gone into that that project because we we often lambast Diamonds Are Forever as one of the weaker entries in the franchise and would Lazenby have given more gravitas to that that point would he have made it more emotive would he have you know it probably would have been a very different film but it as you say Adam it is one of those great what ifs of the franchise you know should we have seen more from Lazenby also was it always a hidden clue that he is the only James Bond who in his gun barrel literally gets down on one knee based on the Bond producers foresight i'd say that's completely coincidental adam number five okay and on to number five and this time we have daniel craig our latest and to date uh longest serving bond actor 
he hit the ground running, of course, with Casino Royale and Martin Campbell reinventing the character and giving him the origin story. And from that point on, we were hoping it would go from strength to strength. He had a mixed bag, let's say. So obviously we had Quantum as a not one of the best, let's say, probably the worst. Um, but for me, you know, Skyfall is still one of the great entries of the series. And of course, he left the franchise with probably the biggest talking point we'll ever have. I, I still maintain that Daniel Craig is a very, very good Bond actor. I think that, you know, a lot of the flack he receives is perhaps a little bit unfair. Well, I'd say I think this is the most shocking part of our list. I think uh, most Bond fans, my feeling is that most Bond fans our age or younger would put Daniel Craig as number one or or two at the, the lowest. Uh, so, yeah, I think the general consensus is that he's been pretty amazing as Bond, which I would generally agree with. I think he has been amazing, even in Quantum of Solace, which, which was terrible. Craig's performance is perfectly uh, serviceable. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's a really, it's a shocking, but I think it's maybe, I think we need a little, little bit more time, I think, between us and no time to die let's try and get as much distance as we can from from that film maybe that's slightly influenced our decision to have craig as number five uh but i don't know maybe he's up against some big competition isn't he in the uh the future stars uh that we'll talk about so yeah i think he's been a fantastic bond it's just disappointing the way that uh, that it all ended yeah i i was staggered that he came in as low as five here i think you know he's the longest serving he brought a much wider audience to bond than there had been beforehand he was BAFTA nominated for playing him he's been critically revered but I think the other thing is he was just a victim of his own success in the end I think you're right he, he was like more always better than the films he was in and actually thanks to No Time to Die he's probably got one of the patchier Bond records now weirdly his psychologically nuanced portrayal of the role worked so well in Casino Royale but I think they just tried to build all the other films around it often with his input um, but for me it would only really work well once after that in Skyfall after that it always felt like they were just trying to do too much with the character, bend it too far, go a little bit, you know, too much into the, the human tragedy, you know, art storyline that they were trying with him. So I just think all of that ended up working against him a bit in the end. As you say, Adam, it went down quite a serious tone towards the end of Daniel Craig's reign, which is, which you know, which is, it was kind of necessary coming out of the Brosnan era, which was a bit more, I guess, tongue-in-cheek with the way that Brosnan brought that character um, to the screen. And obviously Daniel Craig's role was to bring it into a much more serious tone. With the exception of David Niven, there's never been a bad Bond as such. So it's, you know, it, it, there was always somebody that was going to have to come in a controversially low position, I think. Yeah, I think the problem is that if reports are to believe, then that's it's the ending that Craig wanted himself, isn't it? He wanted he wanted this particular death scene to to cap off his his time as Bond. So he's kind of uh, yeah hoist of his own petard, really. Sorry, Daniel, you're you're number five. Yeah, you are. I mean, I mean, we should point out he did bring a big physical commitment to the role beyond any of the other actors. I mean, he sustained major injuries playing Bond, and in a time when everyone's comparing Bond to the Mission Impossible films, and oh, Tom Cruise is really hanging off the plane. No, Daniel Craig is putting himself on the line every bit as much as Cruise is in those films. But it's strange he never quite nailed the comedy of Bond, despite the fact that his performances as Benoit Blanc and also that Volca advert he did recently with Taika Waititi, they show that he is a genuinely funny actor, so it's strange that he was never able to bring more of that in. I guess he's also, he's just not quite the most convincing of womanizers, is he? I mean, I totally am by him falling head over heels in love with Vesper and Madeline. I don't quite believe him in those sort of casual dalliances, which is probably why they didn't have as many of them for him. 
I told you he needed Catherine Tate in one of the films. Bit of comic relief. I do think it would have been quite a good Mrs. Bell live and let die style uh, action sequence just for him to be stuck in like a a little three-wheeler Robin Reliant or something with Catherine Tate's nan. Holy shit! Okay, and in at number four is Pierce Brosnan. So, Bronhon, as we've said before, he straddles the two totems of Connery and Moore. He's very light-hearted and playful, uh, but with a violent intensity when needed. And he also, I guess, similarly straddles the classic and the modern era as he sort of plays Bond as he is always known to have been, as this kind of old-school Cold War relic within a very modern action film. Um, the look of Brosnan as Bond is impeccable, isn't it? He is dark and handsome, he's got the twinkle in the eye, he's got the roguish smile, he looks absurdly good in everything they put him in. I mean, you can 100% believe that all those women would happily jump into bed with him, and that you can also completely 100% believe that he would just happily swan off and get on with his day afterwards. Brosnan as an actor could take the role of Bond and he could, similar to Moore, he could balance out the sensitive topics and the more um, emotive topics with the kind of one-liners and with the humour. You know, you look at um, GoldenEye and Tomorrow Never Dies. Tomorrow Never Dies is a great example of him just, just throwing out numerous one-liners just for just for laughs. You know, the, the scenes where he first meets Elliot Carver and he's, ba again, just basically goading him into um, admitting that he is the villain and effectively re revealing his hand early on. You know, you can't really imagine Daniel Craig or Timothy Dalton even really doing that. It's, it, it is only kind of Moore and Brosnan could really carry that off. Yeah, I agree, Phil. I think he's a, a great memory of our childhood, isn't it? He's the bond that we all grew up with. Uh, so I'd say he's a, he's a really strong and a position number four on the list doesn't seem great, but I think he's a really strong number four. I think he's an all-round... I think if you did the categories of what you want from a Bond, I think Brosnan is the one who would score above average on all of the categories, which you can't... Even for people higher on the list, I don't think you can say they would score above average for everything. Uh, so I'd say he's, on average, I think he's, he's just a perfect Bond. He was made to play Bond, uh, and I think uh, I'm glad that we got those films apart from die another day of course <laughs> i think also he needs credit for a couple of things first for being a lovely ambassador for the role even in the circumstances of you know he's the only bond film to kind of be let go rather than walk away but he still talks about the role and his time in the series with such class and humility and i have a lot of time and respect for him for that and also just those relationships with q and m they're absolutely lovely aren't they the first is sort of two warm and fuzzy old timers and the second that sort of reluctant respect and trust genuinely growing from the rockiest of rocky stars certainly with brosnan and uh llewellyn there's there's almost like a father-son dynamic with that you know they they kind of riff off each other and they're they're kind of eager to sort of joke joke with each other and it's you know is and again the poignancy of as we've mentioned before with the world is not enough there is you know so there are real moments of joy and sadness within Brosnan's portrayal of, of the role and I think that's probably not since Lazenby really that we we see that and, and you know and I think we owe a, a great debt again to Brosnan for how he how he brought the franchise back from you know from from years of uncertainty well he may not be the best Bond but he was certainly the best Heffin then maybe you shouldn't be living here and in at number three, it's the original gritty Bond. It is Timothy Dalton. So things are about to get nasty, but uh, it's a very respectable 
bronze position, I think, for the, the leading man of only two Bond adventures. Uh, I've, I'm not quite the fan of uh, Living Daylights or License to Kill as, uh, as Adam and Phil, uh, but I've, I've really come to admire Dalton's performances, uh, and I, I just wish the, the legal disputes hadn't deprived us of that third outing, because I think it would have been even better than, uh, than those two, which is quite difficult, <laughs> certainly uh, according to most Bond fans. Dalton's not quite the ambassador of the Bond brand, uh, but I don't think he needs to be really. I think it's good that we've got uh, kind of a, an actor who has uh, portrayed the character. He's done a brilliant job and then he's just got out and uh, we, we, he doesn't give any comments about Bond um, because that's a character that's uh, in the past for him. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, wonderful. Only two films, but uh, I wish there was more. Yeah, absolutely, Martin. I think, again, it's one of those great what-ifs of the franchise. You know, if if Dalton stayed on, how different would Bond have been into the 1990s? Of course, we've meant, Adam and myself have mentioned our fondness for The Living Daylights and Licence to Kill, particularly because, you know, as we've mentioned before on the podcast, the way that certainly action films at that time in the late 80s were kind of changing focus and they were becoming a lot grittier and a lot more, a lot more, violent really you, know, you look at least a weapon or a die hard as a comparison at that time you know and, and the bond franchise was having to compete with a very different style of of action film at this point in time and we also had you know a very changing political front as well you know we were kind of coming towards the end of the cold war as a you know as a kind of a talking point within the films but really this is where dalton is is you know he's kind of in his element because he he gets the uncompromising side of Bond's character, but there, there is also moments of tenderness, you know, when, when he's in, you know, license to kill when, when he can show his tenderness with Pam Bouvier um, and to an extent with, um, with some of the other characters, you know, there, there is a fondness there with Q again, perhaps one of his failings is the fact that he, like we said with Daniel Craig, his his ability to do the the one liner is a bit stilted. Yeah, I'm I'm starting to second guess this uh, ranking, even as we're going through it now, because because yeah, Dalton is very much the connoisseur's choice. Everything Craig just did, he did previously, but from a more sort of weary older version, as as Phil says, which befits the eighties and the Cold War coming to the end. But I don't know. Yeah, should he be so high up? I mean, he only did two films. In terms of the all round Bond chops, Martin makes the point with Brosnan. He's a big tick in every category. Uh, Dalton doesn't do the humour, as you've said. He's not the best at wearing the clothes, I would say. He doesn't really do the womanising particularly well. Are we just more enticed by Dalton of what could have been? Because he was cut off in his prime. What we have seen is so promising. But he never got that all-important third film, which is normally when longer-serving Bond actors really nail it. It was kind of... This was actually difficult for me because I, th I was toying with whether to actually put Dalton higher on, on the grounds that... Or after the event, there was a lot of talk about the fact that, you know, Dalton kind of portrayed Fleming's version of Bond so much more closely than any other, even possibly even more closely than, um, you know, Sean Connery, really. From my point of view, I personally think that, you know, Dalton never made a bad Bond film. I know he only made two, and that's also, you know, you can't really judge him in the same respects as more Craig or Brosnan or Connery. But for me, he was, you know, those two films are imperious in terms of the fact that, you know, he, Dalton, the mix of kind of rage that he brought to the role, you know, you see him, the anger and the emotion that he brings to um, the role when Saunders is killed in Living Daylights or when Della dies in um, License to Kill, you know, there is, Dalton brings such a, an emotive performance, whether it is anger or 
sadness. I think it's an interesting point. I mean, the third movie could have been shit, couldn't it? I mean, we as much as I want a, a good Bond film set in Hong Kong, which I think the, the third Dalton film was supposed to be, uh, we all know Bond does have some issues, doesn't he, when he comes to Asia? So it could have been terrible. But yeah, I, I think it's, a, it's interesting. Maybe we are boosting him up slightly for his two excellent films and then the the potential for more yeah perhaps he was also meant to fight a cyborg i think in a, in one of those abandoned third dalton films but uh, the less said about that i will concede actually phil does make the good point that because he is an authentic classical actor he brings the weight of his theater chops to those films everything just lands with more weight doesn't it like particularly the death scenes i think in dalton you feel that people have died and that he's really upset the stakes seem higher and that is a result and a consequence of what he brings to it as an actor Number two. It's the silver medal, and you're probably not going to be surprised, but it is Sir Roger Moore. Moore's introduction really did make a huge difference um, in terms of the tonal shift. We now had a, an actor who was much more comfortable with the kind of the blend of serious moments and the comedy moments, and that would really come to the fore in the late seventies and early eighties. We've we've waxed lyrical about you know how good. Moore is in The Spy Who Loved Me. And then, of course, into the 80s, the more serious tones with the John Glenn films, of course. we've Again, we've, we've been so positive about For Your Eyes Only and Octopussy. I think for all three of us, they are among our very favourites. And, of course, Roger Moore made it his own, even if he was perhaps a bit too old coming towards the end of his time. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to summarise quickly, isn't it, what Roger Moore means to us all in terms of James Bond. It's quite a, a difficult task. Probably I'd sum it up as saying that he made James Bond fun. So, Phil, you always talk about watching Bond on a rainy Sunday afternoon when you're bored. Where do I go to? I might go to a Brosnan film, but I'm more likely to go to a Roger Moore. You've got dangerous characters, but you've got a friendly main character in Roger Moore's Bond who will take you through the journey and you're going to enjoy all of it. So uh, I think that's the way I would succinctly put it. You can say so many things about Roger Moore, uh, but I'd say he made Bond fun for me. Yeah, that is it. I think when we interviewed Ollie Smith, I think he put it best. I think I love that Roger Moore loved being Bond so much. He was telegraphing, as Ollie Smith said, that this is all just a little bit of fun and, and that you're invited to the party. Um, and so even looking at those films now, there's a lot of things that you shouldn't be able to get away with. But even now, they don't feel that regressive because he's so charming and good humoured and everything's done with such sort of classic English levity, I guess. Um, you know, it, it's own, and also he was just such a great ambassador for the role later we've talked about brosnan doing that more really did that and i think it's that that comes across in the films the fact that he is having so much fun and loving doing this and really you know embracing it for everything that it is that just as fans there's nothing better than that because you respond so well to it of all the interviews that we've done over the course of season two and season three of all the people that kind of met and knew roger moore they've they've all spoken so positively about yeah, just how how nice he was as a character in real life and obviously, you know, how he kind of brought that to the role. I think also the fact that he can't really do any of the action, despite the fact he's playing the world's greatest action hero, obviously adds to the fun. You know, there's so much obvious doubling and green screening and obviously we've talked about his over-the-top old man groaning later on. 
Um, but fundamentally, more I think, is the man they now need to look to going forward. The Craig era has ended up being just too dark and too introspective in the final analysis, and actually re-embracing a sense of both the epic and the silly, which Roger Moore had in spades, I think that is absolutely the new direction. I mean, not with you're not suggesting we reanimate Roger Moore. You're suggesting someone similar to Roger Moore. Number one. And in at number one, obviously, is Sean Connery. I mean, even a podcast named after Roger Moore has put Sean Connery as the top dog, which I think tells you everything you need to know. Martin Scorsese, the great director, always says to his actors, don't act, behave. And I think that's the thing with Connery as Bond. It's his behaviour in the role in tiny moments that make it so rich and compelling. Putting hairs in cracks on wardrobes in Doctor No, pinching bits of fruit on the way out of snooping around a room in Thunderball. And it's, it's worth reiterating again that Connery is not an English gentleman. He's a rough and ready Scot from really abject poverty. It took huge work on his part, sleeping in the suits, getting under the skin of the character to make what you see so effortless and so confident and that level of relaxation into such an iconic enjoyable entertaining role yeah i don't feel too bad because i think that roger himself would uh, well he did admit that connery was bond in many interviews so i feel like we've we're, we're using the we've got the roger choice here as, as connery number one of course um and i think it, it's testament really to how amazing he was in the role that he can have a very bored performance in you only live twice challenge the official Eon production in Never Say Never Again in one of the worst films I've ever seen. And, uh, and yet he's still <laughs> the best Bond. I think that's all we need to say, really, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think it's the power of forgiveness. I think, you know, when you look back at Diamonds Are Forever and Never Say Never Again, it's sort of, even with those blots on his copybook, we still look back with such fondness at what Sean Connery gave gave to the role because, you know, he was the original. And, and you know, we've said time and time again of, you know, all the great actors that have taken on the role and and nobody can still really get close to Connery's um, portrayal of the character. And it's just, you know, those little moments as well, the fact that, um, you know, infamously that when Connery went for the uh, the audition for the role, the fact that Cubby and uh, Harry Saltzman looked at him walking away out the window and, and they reflected on the fact he walked like a panther, you know, that, that effortless movement that he had. And even when, you know, he gets into his grumpy years, we can still forgive him for the fact that, you know, that in UN Live Twice, you can tell he's just a bit fed up. But, you know, he, he still carries off the, the role with a lot of integrity, even though he, he looks like he's about to punch someone at one stage. But, you know, his his films remain peerless for the most part. You know, even if some of them haven't aged particularly well, they're still ones that we always come back to and we always talk of so so highly. He was uh, he was grumpy even in that uh, Goldfinger documentary, wasn't he? When he was saying, I'm not really James Bond. It reminded me of McKellen in uh, Extras. I'm not really a wizard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all of that. I mean, those first five films, that's still the best and most successful run anyone has had as Bond, supplemented by, of course, what a blast he's having, kind of taking it a bit less seriously in Diamonds Are Forever. And it's always that dark charisma and that star power and injecting just enough reality and believability to make that superman a flesh and blood figure but i think the other thing is he's a very generous actor you believe always in the unique chemistry he has bond has with every other ally and uh, and female character and all the animosity against each villain it's always a distinctive and unique thing whether that's kerim or sylvia trench honey quarrel tiger aki pussy girl goldfinger Every single one, it's a different, unique relationship, even though half of them are being dubbed. 
I think you got the point. So it's on to our next segment, which is the James Bond Film Club. Last time we had the Dean Martin spoof, The Silencers, but I believe it's a change of pace this time. Uh, the Bond films, of course, had triple X. I think we've got a quadruple X, have we, this time? Uh, over to Adam. Yes, indeed. So I thought uh, for the end of the series, we'd look back on 2004's Layer Cake. So this is generally reckoned to be the film that won Daniel Craig the Bond role. Craig plays an unnamed, self-described drugs businessman who runs a very slick operation packaging up big supplies of cocaine for uh, a gangster kingpin called Jimmy Price, played by Kenneth Cranham. Um, and at the start of the film, he's very highly respected. He keeps his hands clean of all violent crime, uh, and he's almost laundered enough money to, uh, into his personal funds to retire. However, Jimmy then surprises him with two unusual jobs. The first is finding a buyer for a million ecstasy pills stolen from the Netherlands by Jamie Foreman's two-bit cockney hood. And the second is to find the drug, ad drug addict daughter of um, Jimmy's best friend, Eddie Temple, played by the great Sir Michael Gambon, who's a sort of, I guess, high society establishment crook. However, Craig finds himself in way over his head when the Dutch mob sends a hitman to kill him and recover those pesky pills. Uh, and it's then revealed that Jimmy's motives for recovery Covering Eddie's daughter may not be entirely selfless. Uh, so this is an interesting one. It's directed by Matthew Vaughan. Uh, it's his film debut, and he goes on to direct the Kick-Ass and the Kingsman films. Um, there's a bit of a laddie and loutish streak to his films, which presumably comes from his time producing for Guy Ritchie. And at the time, I sort of dismissed Layer Cake as being just a kind of another Guns and Geezers film. But actually, it is a bit better than that looking back because it kind of rises above the street level. As the title suggests, it's kind of about all the levels of the criminal underworld, from the very highest to the very lowest, and the sort of power struggle that occurs when those layers come into conflict. Um, and Vaughan does direct it very well. There's a bit of inevitable sort of post-Goodfellas kind of influences. It's very heavily driven by voiceover and by a sort of pop soundtrack. Um, but it's quite sharp and energetic without being too flashy. And it also holds up very well for an early noughties film. I mean, normally those things date immediately as soon as someone whips out a Nokia 3310. But this one actually still feels quite fresh and quite vibrant. What's quite fascinating now, though, is that there are very early roles for a lot of up-and-coming character actors in this. So Sally Hawkins, Tom Hardy, Future Bond perhaps, Sienna Miller, Dexter Flesher, as is Ben Whishaw as a kind of gangster version of Scrappy-Doo. Uh, and he even has um, a couple of scenes with Daniel Craig which compare quite humorously to what they do as Bond and Q later on. But I tell you what, you can totally see how this put Craig in the Bond frame with a bullet. He'd only really done sort of leads in independent films up to this point and sort of supporting roles in mainstream stuff. This was his first major film lead and he's totally magnetic. Like you can't take your eyes off him. He's charismatic. He's nuanced. He looks a million dollars and, and eerily quite young, even compared to Casino Royale. He, he looks like he's sort of 12 or something. Um, and his steely eyes just kind of radiate intelligence and intellect. And I guess we kind of overlook that a bit in, in his Bond performance and he brings it to it. It's just how smart he is, as well as how physical he is as Bond. And, and Craig just sort of, even when he's playing Benoit Blanc, you know, the fact is he is a super sleuth. He's a mastermind. Um, so that's Layer Cake. It's on Netflix still. It's well worth looking back on. I'll say I, I really enjoy Layer Cake. I mean, I, I've still got it on DVD, actually. But Craig plays sort of the anti-hero in this. You know, he's he's kind of he's not a, a good person in terms of his business, but you kind of you have to like him because of the fact he's just so suave and just so sophisticated much like you know how he becomes bond in many respects you know you don't always like craig's bonds in terms of how he acts with different characters but in the end he is always the one that you you cheer because he is the hero of the piece 
yeah, for me, there are elements that are that haven't aged as well in Layer Cake, but I, I still, it, it's still one of those films I just really enjoy watching. And you're selling it to me, Phil. I haven't, uh, I haven't watched it for many, many years. I can't remember. <laughs> oh, thanks for summarising it, Adam, because I had no idea what happened, even though I'm sure I have seen it. I've been interested. Did you get the like the revenue stats on it, Adam? Because I'm sure. Every house that I visited in the early noughties had a DVD of Layer Cake, including my own. It must have done quite well on those sales. Uh, okay, so, so it made on a budget of $6.5 million, made $11.9 million. So yeah, it, it kind of doubled its, uh, yeah, it doubled its budget, basically, which is, I'd call that a modest success, despite all the DVD sales. Well, was it successful enough, wasn't it, for, for Daniel Craig? I mean, yeah, he was laughing all the way to the bank off the back of it, definitely. Welcome to the layer cake, son. And now we move to our next segment. It is, of course, Phil's bloopers. And I believe this time we've got a film that uh, could be described as an embarrassing blooper after Casino Royale. Over to Phil. Thanks very much, Martin. Of course, this week for our Bond bloopers, we are looking at Quantum of Solace. Um, much like we often mention with A View to a Kill, we could often describe this entire film as kind of one long blooper, really. It's a mix of kind of those infamous bloopers that a lot of the Bond community have picked up on over the years. And some of the slightly more um, obscure bloopers, let's say. So, And a few of you mentioned probably the most infamous from uh, the film itself which was of course the magic road sweeper now if you watch very carefully in quantum of solace when bond has stolen the motocross bike uh when he's trying to infiltrate uh elvis and dominic green you'll note that one of the extras in the background is is not doing their job particularly well because it's a road sweeper who seems to be able to sweep the road in midair um now this is so well known that it's actually become a gif on twitter it's that ridiculous um so do do look out for it the next time you watch quantum of solace of course if you haven't fallen asleep by that point the next kind of ridiculous gaff is actually um when it's the boat chase so now when he um reaches down he finds a grappling hook within the back of it and he seems to be able to throw that onto the uh uh, the inflatable that's chasing them, but it doesn't actually seem to be connected to anything. So it kind of launches it into the air without actually being connected. You'd have thought both boats would have been thrown out of the water, but somehow it's again, a magic grappling hook that only throws one boat um, clear of, of Bond's path. And he's able to escape somehow by magic. One of the other early moments is of course, during the early car chase where Bond is escaping um with Mr. White, of course, the follow-on from uh, Casino Royale. Now, if you're eagle-eyed, and you know a lot of our fans have been, you'll note that Bond and Mr. White seem to have very quickly changed their outfits since they've been escaping from the scenes in Casino Royale. Now, it's been estimated that only an hour has supposedly gone past since Bond leaves uh, Mr. White's property in Casino Royale is being chased across the roads in Lake Como. But yet they both seem to have been um, able to, to completely change their outfits since they started. Although it's often seen as a continuity error, it could actually be the case that um, the suit providers between Casino Royale and uh, Quantum Assault actually changed. So in Casino Royale, it's Brioni that provides the suits, whereas in Quantum of Solace is actually Tom Ford. So there is, it's a glaring continuity error, but maybe that's that's where it all stems from. 
We also note that in the car chase itself, there is elements where the Aston Martin is clearly damaged quite severely, where the door is ripped off. Whereas in other scenes, you can see it's actually fully intact, so there's hardly any damage at all. Going back to the continuity errors again, we've also got a moment where Bond is clearly injured um, during the boat chase. He clearly gets cuts on his forehead, which seem to be quite serious. Yet a few hours later, he's clearly in Austria with no signs of, of any injury at all. So he must have, you know, really quick self-healing wounds. So they're kind of some of the, the very brief uh, gaffes in uh, Quantum Souls, of course. There's many more that we could mention. Pretty much the whole film is one major gaffe. And, and the less said about Elvis's haircut, the better. I think that's the worst gaffe of them all. Somebody clearly decided that that was a great uh, sartorial look for him. Yeah, it's a surprising amount of gaffes, isn't it, for such a short film? But it did feel quite long. Wasn't the biggest gaff the fact that uh, Michael G. Wilson, Barbara Broccoli tried to make and release the entire film in about seven months or whatever it was Kevin Todd told us? There's no middle ground, is there? It's seven months or seven years. Nothing in the middle. Thanks, Michael and Barbara. So onto the delve deeply segment where we explore the Bond locations and this time we're delving deeply into France. Of course there have been many successful Bond women from France but the country itself has also featured quite prominently throughout the decades. So let's go in chronological order. The franchise's first foray into France comes with 1965's Thunderball. If you recall the pre-title sequence, Bond is keeping a close eye on the fake funeral of Spectre agent Jacques Bouvard. And of course, after the ceremony, he ensures Colonel Bouvard will be receiving a real funeral. Well, the locations for these scenes are actually the Chateau d'Annette, about one hour drive west of Paris, built in the 16th century for Henry II's mistress. You can take a guided tour around the castle, the adjoining chapel and surrounding gardens. So well worth a visit, although some reviews do mention that your French proficiency does need to be quite high to get the most out of the tour. And I don't think there's a conveniently placed jetpack on the roof for any monolingual English speakers to make a quick getaway. Connery's Bond returns to France for a much less popular pre-title sequence in Diamonds Are Forever, that awful opening where Bond goes around looking for Blofeld, the French terrace beach where he introduces himself in double time for some inexplicable reason. My name is Bond, James Bond. And uh, where he strangles a lady in her own bikini, charming, uh, is part of the Hotel de Cap Idonhoc, five-star luxury in the southern eastern city of Antibes. So, I mean, I'd recommend going there just because it's an amazing location, not because we've got that one bad scene film there. And moving back to the castles, the chateaus, they feature prominently in the Roger Moore era. Firstly, Drexel's Californian estate in Moonraker. In reality, you'll be surprised to hear they didn't move the castle brick by brick to America. They filmed the interior scenes of the Chateau de Gamonte and the exterior scenes at the Chateau de Vaux-le-Vicomte. The uh, latter of which is a 17th century castle you can visit for a very reasonably priced 18 euros. Uh, I don't know how kindly they take to cosplay. Maybe you could dress up in white lycra and start doing star jumps in the garden, although I'd probably advise against it. And then, of course, Zorin's stud farm that we spoke about at the beginning of this episode, filmed at the Chateau de Chantilly. The estate, including the forest, spends an enormous almost 8,000 hectares and lots of different trips and tours you can take at varying price points. The most extravagant of which I found on getyourguide.com. You can book a seven-hour guided tour around the stables and castle, culminating in a fine dining experience, all for just over €300 Euros per person. 
Maybe they throw in some of Pegasus's vitamins for free. And obviously the most prominent French landmark, the Eiffel Tower, appears in A View to a Kill. Staying inside the structure might be preferable to venturing outside like Bond and Mayday do. You can visit Le Jules Verne, the famous restaurant where Monsieur Aubergine meets his untimely demise. Although do remember you have to make a separate booking on top of the general admission to the tower itself. Moving into the modern era, Brosnan's Bond encounters Xenia Onatop at the Casino de Monte Carlo in Goldeneye after that car chase scene, which was actually filmed on the Route de Gentilly, two hours north of Monaco. And he returns to France for another chase sequence in The World Is Not Enough, the ski scenes with Electra King as they're being chased by the paragliders that was filmed on location at Chamonix. And surprisingly, in my research, I couldn't really find any locations of note in France for the Daniel Craig Bond film. So he had many French co-stars in his films, but not really any locations, although we won't feel too sorry for him. The locations that he did get were quite incredible in their own right. So yeah, that's that's France. It's uh, one of the favoured locations for the Bond films. Hardly surprising, I'm sure. Both cast and crew rather enjoy their time in between takes on the the French Riviera. So I guess whichever direction they take the franchise in the future, uh, I'm certain James Bond will return. Answer my questions quietly, but clearly. So next up is Q branch. The questions branch. What questions did our lovely listeners have, Phil? Uh, we've had plenty of interactions on our social channels. So. The first question came in, of course, it's that old chestnut of who do we think is going to play Bond next. Um, Roscoe Wellintonio got in touch on Facebook and he's suggested that um, Sam Hewen, of course, from Outlander, may be a prime candidate. But he wants to know our thoughts um, on Sam as a prospective Bond actor in the future. Possibly not Bond 26, but maybe, um, you know, later on as well, he could still be considered. Martin, have you seen Outlander? Do you, do you know who visit? No, me neither. Um, don't know, he might be good. Probably too old, is, is that... he? I think the the next Bond have is got to find... probably in their have teenage got... years at the moment, aren't they? Probably. I mean, have I got to find a picture of him so you can see what he looks like? Well, I assume he looks right. It's, it's whether he's any good or not. Alan Rickman would have been quite good as Bond. The name's Bond... Yeah. James Bond. It'd have been a kind of sneering. You wouldn't have known whether he was the villain or Bond, really, would you? But I think he'd have been good. Hope that answers your question, listener. <laughs> Alan Rickman. I yeah, think we've I... really answered that question brilliantly there. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, I think that's pretty much put a death knell in Sam Hewen being suggested as, as the next Bond. I think the fact that two of our team haven't even heard of him or, or know what he looks like, I think that's... Yeah, so, sorry, Roscoe. I, th- I think it's a uh, definite no from us. They're talking about Aaron Taylor Johnson for a bit, weren't they? There was a rumour that he'd gone for a screen test and he'd shot a gun barrel and it all looked very good, but everything's gone very quiet now. So I imagine that he's going to be the last wrong rumour before someone's actually announced. The same way Clive Owen, I think, was. Everyone thought it was going to be Clive Owen, didn't they? And then it was Daniel Craig. So I think there's probably a bit of that going on. Next up, we have a question from Dom, and he is um, it's quite an interesting one, actually. So we often speak about the fact that uh, Bond obviously is often having to go undercover. But what would we say is the most egregious example of Bond giving away his identity? Dom himself actually thinks that uh, the moment in The Spy Who Loved Me, where, of course, the iconic Union Jack flag uh, parachute is released, is quite a quite a bullshit statement in terms of the fact that, you know, he's, he's kind of giving away that he's a secret agent. I also think from my point of view that um, 
in a view to a kill, one moment we haven't mentioned is at the very start when the slightly ridiculous uh, iceberg submarine comes along and, and as soon as Bond opens the hatch, there's a little uh, Union Jack emblazoned on the inside of it. I quite like Tomorrow Never Dies when Brosnan's Bond goes to the uh, the Carver Media party. And he's not even he's not even got a terrible alias in that one. He's he's not James Stock. He's James Bond, banker James Bond. And then he's just kind of taunting Carver, isn't he, with those ridiculous one-liners? I'd be cast adrift. Yeah, and they still need tech guru Henry Gupta's um, you know, digital wizardry to work out even at that that he's James Bond the spy, rather than just some banker no one's heard of. I'd actually on this, I'd go back to a view to a kill, but to a later moment when the fireman um comes to see him after he's escaped from City Hall and he goes, Is this your gun? And Roger Moore goes, Oh yes, thank you. Immediately arrests him, because yeah, that obviously that's the gun that's just been used to kill someone. Why are you just going there, Governor? much i'll just take that back and be on my merry way thank you i think that's a pretty comprehensive i think avtac has come in for a bit of an attack this uh this episode but uh but now i think that's a pretty comprehensive summary so so dom i hope that that answers your your question do you know um, who just... he is he's james stark of the london financial times <laughs> actually no on the fire hose. Just, I mean, that's the worst police officer in history. The fact that he gets, he falls for that. No, 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 no! Stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! So we move to the final segment of the show. It's the quiz, and I believe it's Adam. You're going to be giving us the questions this time. I, I haven't caught, I haven't, can't even remember where we are with the quiz. I assume you won very easily, Adam. You're already the champion of our second Cubby Cup. Uh, so your second consecutive win. Um, but uh, what, what have you got in, in store for us here with the uh, the quiz questions? Well, yes, for those of you following the Cubby Cup, and I don't think there's very many of you. Yeah, I, I won with five wins several months ago now. But interestingly, this isn't a dead rubber because you both have won two each. So this is going to sort silver and bronze, actually. And I thought I'd do this quiz. It's another higher or lower quiz. And I've done it on Phil's favourite subject, which is the extortionate prices of merchandise on the 007 store. So all I'm going to do is I'm going to go to both of you in turn. I'm going to give you an item. Is it more or less expensive on the 007 store than the one before it? So in time-honoured fashion, Phil, we'll start with you. A snow globe from The Spy Who Loved Me or of The Spy Who Loved Me is on there for £99.95. That's a snow globe. Is a prop replica of Safin's mask from No Time to Die, higher or lower. I mean, Safin's mask must be more expensive than that. It must be at least for like five grand. I'm going to say higher. Well, you're right to go higher, but it's at a very reasonable £295. So, one point to Phil Martin. £295 for the Safin prop mask. A replica laser gun from Moonraker. Higher or lower than £295. Well, I mean, it certainly shouldn't be higher than 295 but it is the 007 store so i mean i my natural instinct would be lower but i'm going to go because it is the 007 store i'm going to get say it's higher than that you are right to go higher it's it's a fair bit higher actually it's 595 pounds for a replica prop of a moonraker space gun so phil a replica of a specter ring higher or lower than 595 pounds it depends what it's made. If it's made of like plastic, then 
It's a proper prop replica of like the rings that Spectre agents have with the octopus on. They charge more there is probably fun. some metal involved. Yeah, would they charge? I mean, knowing the 007, I mean, I've seen sunglasses on there for thousands of pounds. So it, even right, I'm going to regret this, but I'm going to say higher. Unfortunately, it's quite a bit lower. It's only £104.95. A set of live and let die tarot cards. Higher or lower than £104.95. Uh, well, this is one of the rare items that I've bought myself, so I know that it's lower. <laughs> it is lower. Unfortunately, I have to say how much you paid for it, which if it was from the 007 store, it was £79.95. Money bags. So, Phil, a pair of gold-plated, that's gold-plated, golden gun cufflinks. Higher or lower than £79.95? Surely if it's gold-plated, they must be higher. You're right, it's £140. Gold plate not worth a huge amount. Back to Martin, can you hold on to your slender lead? Auric Goldfinger's golfing cap. Higher or lower than 140 quid? You know the one, that little pork pie number. Well, I mean, I've embarrassed myself by saying I bought the Live and Let Die cards, but I mean, who is wanting a Goldfinger cap? Because that's who you want to look like on the golf course, isn't it? Auric Goldfinger in those terrible <laughs> short-length trousers. Well, look, again, I'm going to have to use the same logic. It should be lower. But I think, as Phil said, many of the clothing items are ridiculously priced. So I'm, oh, it's a tough one. I'll go higher. You're right to go higher. That'll set you back £245. <laughs> right, back to you, Phil. This is to stay in touch. This is to stay in the game here. So £245 we got. A pair of a view to a kill sports sunglasses. These, to be fair, these are the ski sunglasses he's got in that opening sequence before he goes Beach Boys uh, snowboarding. So would would 007 sort of actually think somebody would pay more than 240? That's the question. Seen them more, like really like really expensive sunglasses, but I don't know. I'm going to say higher. You are right to go higher. That'll set you back four hundred and fifty five pounds. For the height of a view to a kill fashion. So, Martin, £455 is where we're at. A replica of Odd Jobs Bowler Hat. Well, I mean, who's buying this? The second gift of someone who bought the Goldfinger one, I guess. Well, whoever's going golfing with them, presumably. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I'm feeling like I should go higher, but I'll, I'll go lower on this one. Oh, he's fallen at the last hurdle. Oh. It's much more expensive. It's £795. So that takes us. That's three points apiece. Martin's thrown it away, or has he? We go to a tiebreaker. I'm going to give you one final bit of merch. Best guesses on the price. Whoever's closest wins. The item is a Doctor No pinball machine. All right, Phil, what have you gone for? For four thousand nine hundred ninety-nine pounds. Four nine 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 from Phil. Martin, what have you gone for? Seven grand. Seven grand. Seven grand. I can tell you the actual price was. £6,250, so Martin, you do win, but that was awfully close. That was only a couple of hundred quid in that in the end. Martin, that is well played. I mean... There was oh. a tense final there for second place. Well, if anything, that just highlights the ridiculousness of, uh, of Bond merch, doesn't it? Well, there'll be, there'll be more... Exp I mean, I can, I can still... There was the... Um... Wasn't there, like, some so solid gold bars or something? They were a limited edition, but I'm sure there was a company working with Aston Martin who could get you like a one eighth scale like pedal version of the DB5. And it was some, but it, because they were done in such time, it was something like 1.6 million pounds. It was, it was insane the amount of money. 
They were paying not even for the real car, and it's just David Zaritsky's got one of them. <laughs> Several. <laughs> So that brings us to the end of the episode and the end of the series. So thank you very much if you stuck with us through our long gaps. We promise uh, in the future our episodes will be coming out a little bit more regularly. So uh, thanks for listening. I was Martin. I was Adam. That was Phil. Hope you enjoyed the show. Good night. On the high society thing, remind me, is this one of those moments where um, in an earlier scene, Sir Frederick Gray doesn't want Zorin investigated uh, because he knows him from some club or something? You know how Frederick Gray never wants them? Mag Zorin, he's in my bridge club. I was going to say that. It's good that in the past they didn't have to tie all the storylines together like they do with modern films because then Freddie Gray would be the, he'd be the big bad, wouldn't he? Do you think that's why he's always just in, M- in M's office and that's why M always knows the right people to send Bond after? It's like, who's he hobnobbing now? Right, he's up to no good. Bond, get him. Carl Stromberg, he gave loads to my charity. <laughs> <laughs>